Hello and welcome to another episode of Cripple Zump. And today we have another guest for you for us to have a conversation with. And so Becca will now introduce herself. So over to you, Hi. Becca. Hello, I'm Becca Harrison and I'm a lecturer in film studies and a film critic uh, for various outlets and, and magazines and websites. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I forgot to say, but my name is Shabazz Mohammed. Uh, yeah, so just to kick us off then, Becca, what, how would you, uh, what, what would you say a critic is to you? That's a really good question. And I don't think anyone's asked me that before. Um, for me, a film critic is someone who can watch and engage with and write about film in a way that makes it exciting and accessible to other people. And I think it's sort of changed over the years and, and people have different ideas about what film criticism should look like and what it should achieve. But yeah, for me, I want, if I'm reading film criticism, I want it to give me an indication of like what the film is like and whether someone thinks it's worth seeing or not. But I really want to know about their personal experience of the film. So I don't want someone to just say, oh, it's, it's brilliant and everyone should go and see it. I want to know more about like why that is and what other films they would compare it to. But I think also something about their own taste because everyone has such different opinions on what constitutes a good or a bad film or something worth investing time in. that I want to know, you know, what is it enough about them that I can understand how they're approaching it. Okay. And who are the film critics that spoke to you growing up? I think growing up, I don't remember there being that many diverse that diverse a range of critics so I sort of remember like um Barry Norman would be on the BBC and Jonathan Ross and I would sort of watch their shows and and like uh, Mark Kermode as well writes in the Guardian and I would like read their criticism and sometimes quite enjoy it and like watch their shows I don't know if it spoke to me that much but I feel like now there are a lot more because of you know so much more stuff being online there are now more women film critics more critics of color more disabled critics queer critics like so there's just more perspectives and I feel like there's more more people writing now who I get something out of their criticism what what do you think of Claudia Winkleman as a film critic yeah, I feel like because she she was doing the the film show after Jonathan Ross, wasn't she? Yeah, and I never she was. felt like she she I felt she always felt like a presenter rather than a critic. Yeah, and I always feel like she had to create a space for other people to do criticism, but never said that much herself about what she got out of the films that she was talking about. Yeah. So yeah, I don't ever feel like they. I don't know whether it was just the production team or. What, what her comfort zone was. But yeah, it never felt like she really got to sort of talk about the films all that much. Yeah. Uh, and what was the first art, uh, film review that you did? 
I actually cannot remember what the first film review I did was. I should probably know that. I think I started writing stuff just for my own blog. And I can't remember what it would have been. But I think the most, the first sort of more professional one that I did was on a re-release of a silent film from, I think, 1927. Uh, it's a film called Shooting Stars, which the British Film Institute had um, kind of remastered and, and put out a new edition of. So I, I reviewed that for them. Um, yeah, that's probably the first review I did. So it wasn't anything particularly glitzy or like a new film that was coming out. It was actually a really old one. When was the moment for you that you think that you thought, yes, that could be a film critic or a TV critic? Was there a moment where you thought, you know what, I can actually do this? Yeah, I think I'd done it just on my own time. And I say, yeah, I sort of had a blog where I would write about things that, because I work as an academic and like, that's quite different. Like the right, you know, I write about film all the time, but that kind of writing is like very, very different to film criticism. So I was used to doing that and like writing my own blog and don't think anyone was really reading it, which was, you know, fair enough. But then I was going to a, a big film festival. So I was going to Cannes about three or four years ago. And, and I just thought while I'm here, I might as well just see if I can do it. And so I wrote to some editors and said, you know, I'm at the festival. I write about film on my blog. Do you, would, you know, would you give me a chance to write some reviews for you? And yeah, and Sight and Sound came back and said, yes. And so I started doing it more regularly from there. And that's pretty big, right? Sight and Sound is pretty big. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I was quite surprised that they said yes. Um, I think I just had enough, enough of a portfolio and enough stuff on my blog that they saw my writing and thought, okay, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got really lucky with that. But this is really interesting for me because it's like the, the whole idea of film critics and people writing about film is something I want to explore with you. So the idea of, you know, like I say, like I would say, this is a conversation, so I'm not expecting you to have the answers. I want us to have a chat about it, you know, so I don't want to scare you like, but I've got to have all the answers. I'm not asking for the answers. I just want to have a discussion. So something I, I find really interesting about uh, critics and reviewers and stuff, especially when you go into a film festival situation where you're watching film after film after film, you know, and like, like you've only got so much brain capacity and stuff like that. And like if you're watching seven films in a row and then writing about each individual one, how do you think they go about doing that? Or how would I you? I mean, I think that's a really big problem with yeah. the way that a lot of critics have to write. I've never done, I mean, I've been to festivals and watched seven films in a day and been so tired from it that I can't even think anymore. Mm. Um, and yeah, and like there's, watching one film will change how you see the next film. So yeah. I don't really know how people do that and keep everything separate. 
and like don't mix up their feelings about things. So I tend to, you know, sometimes I'll see two films in a day and write about both of them. But I tend to take a lot of notes. So mm. I'll sit with a notebook on my lap in the dark, yeah. like watching the film and sort of trying to make notes that are in some way readable later on. Mm. Um, just to kind of give myself a reminder of like, this is how I felt at that moment in the film. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. But yes, yeah, some of the, I mean, sight and sound wouldn't do that. They have, you know, a lot of different freelance contributors. You'd probably only write about a handful of films for them in the course of a festival. But some of the big titles like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, they'll have people going to film after film after film and having to write about all of them. And yeah, that, it, that to me does seem like a problem. I'm not really sure how they those people get around it. Yeah, and the other the other thing I always find about film critics and stuff like that is like, what are they there for? You know, for for example, you know, somebody like Mark Kermode and uh, with a film like James Bond, it feels like he has to give it a good review for the British film industry rather than the film itself. If you get what I mean? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate around this and I think there's a perception often from the outside that critics are writing things to, yeah, to promote a film or to please the promoters or to make sure it does really good box office. But actually, generally, I don't think I've really come across that. Mm. And actually, you know, whether or not critics give James Bond a good review it's still going to do really well. Like they don't, it doesn't need critics to give it a good review because yeah. it's so big. It's not going to fail. Yeah. Whereas, you know, some of the indie films and smaller productions that come out, they're the ones that have the most to, to lose or to gain from a good review. Yeah. Because if people, people might not hear about it otherwise. So if Mark Commode says actually this really small production made on a low budget, being shown in six cinemas in the UK is actually brilliant and everyone should go and see it, then it might get picked up and shown in more cinemas. Yeah. So yeah, the big ones, I I think if a, a critic says they like a big blockbuster film, they probably genuinely like it because yeah. they've got no reason to, to sort of try to make it succeed. Yeah. And how do you feel about stuff like Fast and Furious 9 being at Cannes Film Festival? So yeah, they they usually have a one or two big blockbuster films. Do they? That come out. So yeah, so they often have something that won't be shown in their competition, which is like the more art house stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of other examples now. Oh, the other year they had one of the Star Wars films. Yeah. So yeah, they do have a history of showing more blockbuster stuff. Yeah. I I I know through doing my research. Uh, about you that you're big on Star Wars so have you ever seen Star Wars at Cannes? Do you know what I actually didn't get to see Star Wars at Cannes I was there the year that they had yeah it was the Solo I think it was one of the spin-off Star Wars mm. films um, and no I didn't get to see it because I, I'm just not important enough okay. um, and often when you go to these Cannes is particularly bad for it 
but often at festivals there is a hierarchy among the press of like you know the big really big name film critics and magazines mm. will get into everything and then if you're freelance and you're a bit like lower down the pecking order like your chances of getting into the the big release films are quite small do you want to climb that pole I think at one point I had more aspirations to try to do more professional film criticism. And I even thought, you know, maybe that's something I want to do more instead of being an academic, but actually no, now I've just, I've, I can't do that kind of hierarchical thinking. And it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for lots of reasons, but yeah, I also, I don't think that what I have to say is interesting enough or that I should be taking up space when actually there's other people who really deserve to have their voices heard. But um, you see, that's very interesting. So now, uh, what can we unpack that a little bit? Why don't you think yours is that interesting a view or to be heard? Well, I think because, I mean, I think what I'm saying is interesting to an extent often, but I don't know if it's often the most interesting thing someone could say. And I'm really conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm in the minority among film critics for being a woman because there's a big study that they do every year in the US. I think it's at... Uh, one of the Californian universities, it might be UCLA. They do this big report that looks at the gender and race and other dynamics of different parts of the film industry. And I think it's like 78% of film critics, are roughly uh, in the US and UK, are white men. Mm. So, I mean, that's like, which is just a huge number. So there's a way in which, yeah, like, sure, there aren't enough women film critics, but like when you break it down further and further, like actually white women are quite well represented. And I'm yeah. conscious of being like, you know, I am another white woman. I'm going to look at the world in a particular way because I move through the world in a particular way. And there are lots of women of color who deserve platforms and should have their voices amplified and should be, you know, giving feedback to the film industry and like having their views represented in a way that yeah. they don't at the moment. <laughs> but that, but that could be said for academia as well, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's absolutely true of academia. It might even be. I think it's probably worse actually in yeah. academia in the UK than it is even in the film industry in film criticism. Yeah. Not, not to depress you or anything, but I, I'm just saying, like, when I was thinking about it just then, I was like, hang on a minute, but academia is probably worse. And I'm and I'm just going on a, on a hunch there. I'm not, I can't cite any reports or any analysis or all that, but I'm just going on a hunch that I think academia is probably, probably worse. Yeah, it really is. I think there's... I mean, I can't remember the figures, but the Royal Historical Society did a study just on the on history departments. Yeah. And like, yeah, the, the gender and race dynamics in them are, are terrible. And I think there's something like 
9,000 people who hold the rank of professor in the UK. And there are about 25 black women who are professors. Yeah. Like, I mean, so the, yeah, the numbers are so bad. Yeah. I'm not trying to cajole you into doing a certain <laughs> type of job. I mean, do whatever you want with your life. But what all I'm trying to say to you is that I'm a great believer in it doesn't depend it doesn't matter who's amplifying whose voice it depends what they're actually saying and if you can amplify somebody's voice in a real authentic way without having lived experience of that person or that gender or whatever then I think that can often be as equally as valuable in my humble opinion you know because somebody of of a certain colour or, or of a certain disability or of a certain sexuality, just because they have that doesn't, doesn't mean correctly they have the right perspective to raise other people's voice. Do you get that what is, I mean? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I come across enough white women who are actually very misogynistic. Yeah, that you, yeah, they wouldn't necessarily be the people who you you want to be representing everyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things I had thought about doing in future was not even so much about write, doing more writing myself, but yeah. what I would love to do is set up a like an online film critics magazine, like online magazine or, or a website yeah. that specifically hires people who are underrepresented as film critics and like gives people a because a lot of the time what happens is people people whose ideas and perspectives don't fit a very mainstream notion of what film criticism should look like yeah get really pushed out and marginalized so what it would be great to be able to create a space and I think you know like one of the things that frustrates me is we don't really get to talk about the ethics of films all that much no. So, you know, we'll have all these big conversations about Me Too and people being abusive. But then the next thing you know is like that person's made another film and everyone says it's brilliant and it's all forgotten. So, yeah, I'd really like to have a space where you can have more difficult conversations about films like that. So uh, can we start that conversation now? What What do you think is wrong with the ethics of film at the moment? Or is right I mean, in the ethics of film? I think there's, I mean, there's so much ethically difficult and challenging about the film industry and the way it works in so many different areas in the way that films are produced and like who gets given money to make films. You know, we know that women, it's such a tiny number, something like 20% of women get to make a second feature film. It's probably yeah. lower than that, actually. Whereas if you're a man and you make a feature film, you're almost definitely going to get to make another one. Yeah. So it's things like, you know, so who gets given money to do things where that money comes from is often unethical, but the stuff around more to do with film criticism is that people keep going back to this idea that you can separate the art from the artist. So you'll have a director who, is known to have abused lots of actresses or yeah. has stopped those lots of women from working in the industry. 
but then people say oh well they shouldn't have done that but we're still going to give their film really good reviews and we're going to put it in loads of cinemas and we're going to make sure it's really successful and makes lots of money so that that man can keep making films and it's like that tension between people you know and film critics on the one hand saying oh well it's really bad when people are abusive and they shouldn't be allowed to do that but then on the other hand enabling them to keep doing it by keep celebrating their films and I just I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way of responding to this because it's as with all things in life it's just really complicated yeah but I wish that we spoke more about the fact that it's complicated rather than pretending it doesn't happen yeah I'll come back to that in a second but I just wanted to point out another thing not to make this about me but Think about it from an Asian disabled person's perspective, right? How hard it is for somebody like for me to get uh, one of my films off the ground, you know? You know, and years ago, I used to go up to people and speak to people in rooms and they go, oh, you tick all the boxes, you know? Uh, and we could get funding because they start the other, you know, because you tick boxes. But that, on the ground, that isn't necessarily true. And never, never has been true. It's true in 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 a hypothetical situation, but in practice, it isn't true because I haven't got massive links with the film industry, and you know I haven't. Somebody like me or from my class haven't got those kind of connections that kind of uh, can climb the pole, you know. Uh, like what you were saying about film crit- critics, that kind of thing, the whole network, you don't, uh, if you don't have that, you don't have a career, essentially, is what I think. Um, but people say, oh, it's not about that, it's about your talent. No, a lot of it is about luck, and a, a lot of it is about connections, and it, and it always has been, and it always, it just changes a bit, but it's still about the same thing. Like somebody like me or somebody from a low middle class background or whatever couldn't be a runner, for example, for free in a film company to rise up the ranks. And the only way that's changed at the moment is I don't think you can even do that anymore. I don't even know whether that's even a career path anymore still. Yeah, I mean, everything... Yeah, I agree with like everything you've just said, like the idea. I mean, I just think it's so patronizing as well to say, oh, you tick all the boxes. And I feel like it that comes from this idea that's true of the film industry and lots of other industries as well, that that like, oh, divert it's it's like and I you know, using air quotes, like, oh, it's diversity and diversity is a tick box exercise and we can just sign things off on a form like that's it we've solved everything yeah but yeah as you said like it's just not true and it is entirely based on who you know and having the right connections and being in rooms with the right people making decisions about where money goes and for most people that's not possible and it I mean as people talk about it as being oh I got lucky but often I'm Mm -hmm. like well you didn't get lucky you got born into being middle class 
and going to the right schools and probably being white and probably being non-disabled like that's not luck that's a set of circumstances that directly led to you being able to achieve something that you wanted to do so yeah I mean I just this is a a big ongoing problem and I feel like a lot of the film you know I, I know that there are certain schemes and like the BFI has been attempting to make you know positive change and BAFTA have been talking about this but yeah not to disparage them because I think some of their initiatives maybe are working but I think it's very easy for people to say oh well we've had this conversation so that's so we're done now because you know we've talked about it yeah and and that's all there is to it it's often the case that people have had the conversation and they've almost because they've had the conversation, they've given the money to you or or they've given the resources to you by just having the conversation where you haven't really done anything. You've done fuck all. You've <laughs> just had the conversation. That's all you've done, you know? And without, without we probably sound like, all right, too bitter, like <laughs> middle-class people or whatever, but just in case somebody's sat there listening to this and wouldn't, these two sound like two bitter people. Maybe it is a bit like that, but I don't think that's the case. I just think all we're talking about is reality. That That's the reality of the situation. And if that comes across better, then so be it, you know, because that is unfortunately the reality we live in. And anyway, going back to what we were talking about before, uh, the people that come to mind is like Woody Allen and Roman Polanski, right? And what's yep. your opinion on that? That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that that was that's just, yeah, essentially the the heart of what I'm talking about is those kinds of figures who just keep it just astounds me. Like it astounds me that they keep making like Woody Allen in particular keeps making films with all of these allegations against him that are like open common knowledge. And that, you know, you'll still get people who say, oh, but we don't know that it's true. Like, we can't believe everything we hear. And I'm like, I'm sitting here and I'm like speaking from experience. People don't make that kind of stuff up. Like they don't, they don't make it up and go that public with it because you know you're going to get so much hatred back at you and you know people won't believe you. Mm. So, so yeah, I'm always like very inclined to, to say like believe survivors of you know sexual violence domestic violence and yet yeah you'll, you'll still get people sort of saying I think people have this weird cognitive dissonance where they say but I like this person's films and if I like this person's films and this person is a bad person that by extension makes me a bad person and I'm not a bad person so that person can't be and it's it's so weird how people will defend you know, public figures, they've never met, they're never going to come into contact with them. And I think, again, it's something where I'm like, I just wish we could be more nuanced and allow for more complexity mm. in how we interact with, you know, films that we like or literature or music or whatever it is. Like I can, you know, I, I like the Star Wars films, but I also know that the Star Wars films can be really racist and really exploitative and terrible for the environment in the ways that they're produced and they're often quite misogynistic and they have no queer characters in them and they treat disability really poorly like there's so much wrong with them but I think it's 
yeah, I sort of wish that we could say, like, it doesn't make me a bad person to like these films yeah. and to also acknowledge that they have lots of problems with them. And and I'm not saying, I'm not uh, having any, any allegations against George Lucas or anything like that, but all I'm saying, as far as I know, he's, he's probably a billionaire and he's probably squashed a few people along the way. So, I mean, you know, so it com- goes back to how far you want to take it, you know, because people that 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 are that rich have probably got there by squashing a few people, you know. So, you know, how far do you want to take it? And uh, one of the things that came to mind was, would you still watch a Woody Allen film? No, I mean, I. Yeah, this is like a kind of where it comes down to personal choice for me and everyone's going to have their own boundaries and ideas about what they watch and don't watch. And like for me, no, like I just I I cannot bring myself to watch a Woody Allen film. Yeah. And but then there's other things, you know, like it's it's so difficult because then someone could easily say to me, well, you've just sat here and said that you can see all these problems with the Star Wars films, but you still watch them. Yeah. And that's totally fair because like that yeah. does it there is a hypocrisy to that and I recognize it. But if I but told yeah, you, I just feel like everyone has their own But if I told you Sorry, carry on. But if I told you I've still watched Woody Allen films, would that make you hate me or look at me in, in a different way? No, I think it's it's something where I'm like, you know, I if someone could say to me well, how, you know, how can you sit here and watch Star Wars and say all these bad things about it and think and recognise it's harmful to some people? Yeah. I would probably say the same. I'm, like, I'm kind of interested in what do you get out of watching a Woody Allen film? And, do people, yeah. you know, do you watch them and recognise that he's very likely to have done these yeah. quite awful things? And sometimes you can see it in his films as well. Yeah. Like there are kind of hints of it. So I'm interested in how people respond I, to that. But I don't I, think it's helpful to say, oh, well, you're a bad person because you like these films. Yeah. I like watching, you know, with people like that, I like watching their stuff with that context in mind because I think that's, to me, that kind of adds to the to the film, you know? It's like, you knowing about the casting process or whatever, or the lighting process. <laughs> I mean, not to glamorise it in any way, shape or form, but to me it just becomes a lot darker, but it becomes another aspect of the lens that you're looking at the film through, you know? Yeah, and there's lots of films, you know, I feel the same about Hitchcock films. Yeah. I quite often enjoy anything by Hitchcock actually but yeah I I watch them knowing and being able to see some of the quite dark awful parts of his character come through in the films yeah and you sort of know that people like women were being exploited on those sets but yeah it's I think it's and again there's also a, a it's again really complicated but I feel like we have to recognize that that's part of our history yeah and, and to, uh, to ignore it isn't really helping anyone no and to also brush it under the carpet isn't 
helping anybody. I would like I like stuff to be out there in the open, and like you know, if if something comes to light later on, I would like for it to be like front and center, uh, and for people to have the knowledge of it, and then they can make their own mind up whether they want to watch it or not. And now I'm changing gear slightly. I just wanted to ask you about the difference between writing for TV, TV and writing for film. Reviews, what, what is the difference for you? For me, I actually find film much easier to write about because it's, you know, two, maybe three hours. It's self-contained and it's usually, yeah, there's a, a kind of completeness to it that's quite easy to write about. Whereas with TV, I'm often approaching, you know, sometimes I've just written a review of something that was six episodes long, but sometimes it will be 15 episodes. And like actually to try to take in all of that information and write about it in a way that makes sense to an audience who might not have seen it yet can be really, really difficult and quite overwhelming. So, yeah, I think for me, I, TV always like takes a lot more time for me to write about because I've got yeah. to just process more, often lots of different storylines all going on and to think about it as a series and like how does it work in terms of the pace through the different episodes and like do different episodes stand out more. So, yeah, I often find that more difficult. And I'm not asking you to live in shame or anything like that. But has anybody, or, or, or would you ever let anybody um, dictate to you what you could write in a review? No, I strongly object to that. So, yeah, no, I, I would draw the line. I mean, I've actually had PR people from film distributors contact me and ask me to cover certain films and to cover them in a way that's positive because they're struggling. I mean, one in particular uh, got in touch and said, oh, our film that we've got coming out, it's got all of these big name stars in it, but no one wants to go and see it. And it was, yeah, I won't, I won't name them, but it was because there was an actor involved in the film who had just been outed for abusing lots of women. And they were like, oh, you know, we know all these allegations against him have come out. But if you could just watch the film because it's really good and say something positive about it, we'd be very grateful to you. And like that was just like it went straight into the into the trash in my email. And I, I absolutely wouldn't do that. Yeah. But to be honest, if I were you, I would have kept that email. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, maybe I should. Use it for evidence in the future when people say, oh, that doesn't happen. Well, here you go. It does. You know, because yeah. in my opinion, there's so much to that sort of stuff that goes on. People don't usually leave any sort of trail of that, though. You know, that kind of conversation usually has happens at yeah. some sort of party or some kind of chance encounter where nobody can actually, you know, corroborate that story. You know what I mean? So if I were yeah. to keep hold of it, you know. It did feel like a really odd thing to have put in writing and yeah. said to someone you don't know. I feel like someone maybe, yeah, maybe was on work experience and yeah. slipped up a bit there. Um, 
I mean, one of, yeah, the other thing that I find quite strange is often film distributors will send, you know, if they think a critic is, you know, kind of important or a bit of an influencer or they've got a big social media following, they will send them kind of merchandise and food and like other kinds of stuff when a film comes out to get them to promote it which yeah. I mean it happens in all industries and you know the I know that when my book came out the publisher was sending free copies of the book to people to try to get them to talk about it on social media so it's not like I'm you know outside of this yeah. it, it happens everywhere but yeah I do I do wonder about that kind of relationship between distrib distributors and critics where it's like well if they're sending you lots of stuff it's not I mean again it hasn't happened to me fortunately so I've not been in this position but I do wonder like does it make you feel like you have to say good things about it yeah and that moves me neatly on to another question for you is uh I was looking at, at your website and looking at the first take section yeah could you talk to me a bit about first takes yeah, it was something I started doing as a, it was a bit of a challenge for myself to do something a bit more creative with the film criticism that I was doing. And I started doing it just before the first lockdown started last year. So I ha I've only done three of them and I've just kind of, it's been a bit of an abandoned project. But I started trying to make really short two or three minute film reviews as videos in the style of the film that I was reviewing. Yeah. So I did one on the film 1917. Uncut which, Gems. Yeah, I did Uncut Gems and I did Cats, um, where yeah. they were getting increasingly silly and I'm wearing increasingly stupid costumes yeah. in them. Um, but yeah, it was like a way of trying to... I haven't made any films or done any filmmaking since university. And I just thought, I, like, I just wanted a means of being a bit more playful. Yeah. And, and that, trying to communicate about these films in a different way. And I just wanted to take the opportunity, I just wanted to bring that up to give, me, give myself the opportunity to tell you to continue doing them. Oh, really? See, the funny thing, I was doing them and, like, no one was watching them, which no, I, 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 I didn't think. I was like, maybe that's a good thing because they're, you know, I do look a bit silly in them, but no, but I um, think you should continue doing them. I mean, I'm only one person, but you know, I, I looked at them and I thought, oh, some of them, some of it may not work, but that's kind of what's good about it, you know, you know. But you need to be able to take the piss out of yourself, yeah, and and for people to have fun and and for it to be enjoyable for you to do as well. Because the idea of writing film reviews or being an academic just sounds really interesting to me, but aside of it, it sounds really fucking boring to me. <laughs> it is, yeah. I'm, re I'm yeah. really, really, really lonely. So uh, I think yeah, that's it can be. my perception of it anyway. But um, yeah, but when I, when I looked at that, I was like, this person has got a bit of a side to them, you know? So, yeah, I feel like there's a, it's difficult at the moment with, and I think in both academic kind of stuff and film criticism, because academia and the arts are just so under attack from the government and like the right wing press all the time. There's this 
compulsion to present yourself really seriously because it feels like if you don't do that people are not going to take what you do seriously and people are trying to take all the money away and cut it and undermine it from so many different sides yeah but yeah one of the things I feel like is really important is that we don't lose a sense of perspective yeah but and that, yeah and that you can take the piss out of yourself and that it doesn't all have to be really serious yeah and that there should be something like joyful about it and that you're enjoying the things that you're doing so yeah that is that for me feels really important put it this way becca if you're gonna sell out sell out in that way you know <laughs> yeah sell out yeah. by being a fucking idiot rather than you know <laughs> an idiot dressed as a cat yeah rather than doing something like completely like ludicrously wrong you know that that that, that would be my advice anyway because yeah, i, I, think I just think i just think that that is just a good way of doing it and like it, you can you can see there that you're not just a up themselves academic you know because right? academics have this myth about them or you know you have a certain image of an academic and you just think oh as soon as you think oh i'm talking to an academic you think Fuck. i don't know it fills me with dread you know talking to an academic I mean, it sometimes fills me with dread too, and I've been in it for a long yeah. time. But yeah, I mean, I speak to lots of journalists as well who say the same. They're like, oh God, I like speaking to academics always. I always think they're going to be really dry and really boring. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, it's definitely a stereotype where I've met people that that fit the stereotype. But actually, yeah. I think the, I think it's changed quite a lot over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And you get a lot of, a lot more working class people in academia who don't see it in quite the same way and that's really good but yeah I get I just think everyone is trying to where all the money's being taken away and where it's being cut and defunded it's making it yeah like the rest of the arts it's becoming something that only quite rich middle class people can do and then it all gets taken really seriously and it stays really stuffy and I just think that would be a massive shame so could I get a commitment from you on the show that you are going to continue doing the first takes? I'm good. Yeah, yeah I'm going to do it. That's. I think I needed some encouragement to do it yeah, again. So yeah, yeah, definitely in the yeah. next in the next few months when I've gone back to the cinema again, I will. Yeah, I'll start doing it again. Ladies and gentlemen, we're getting exclusive there, uh, so people around the world can look forward to them. Not to put any pressure on you, by the way. <laughs> No, it's good. Sometimes, like sometimes, pressure is a good thing. So yeah. Uh, so where where do you think film criticism and film reviews will be in ten years' time? I think more and more and more online because there's yeah. I've, I mean, we've already seen like so much print stuff has disappeared, and I think I think we're still going to see professional film critics because it looked at one point like that might stop the idea of like being a professional critic might just die out because so, you know, anyone can go online and anyone can write a film review. And, you know, there was like the rise of Rotten Tomatoes and people scoring things and and whatever else. But actually I think that that's settled down a bit. But I, I mean, one thing that my, my hope is that in 10 years time, we'll have more different people known as film critics and like, yeah kids like I don't know working class black kids will grow up 
seeing people in the arts writing reviews doing criticism making that stuff and they will see people that they aspire to be rather than growing up and being like okay there's one old white guy on the telly who talks about film and that's it so that's what I'm hopeful will happen and what do you think about the five five star rating system I don't I, I hate being asked to rate films like that because I feel like it can be a bit reductive but I you know if people are trying to decide what to go and see and they know they like a particular genre or something like that, then actually it can be quite useful for people just to sort of say, okay, yep, I can see that this has got this kind of rating. That's going to be the deciding factor in whether I see this film or that film. So I think for some people it's really useful. What's always the deciding factor for you to watch a film? For me, I mean, I will short of certain kinds of horror film which i do not enjoy watching i'll i'll probably go and see almost anything and i think that's something that you have to be ready and prepared to do as a critic even and like cats. sometimes you know if i've been even cats even cat i actually put myself through that i didn't even get a commission to write about that one i decided to go and see it but yet i actually and sometimes i really enjoy seeing a bad film yeah. like i would rather see a film that I have a strong reaction to than one that I just walk away from thinking like, okay, well, sh I shrugged it off like it was fine, but I don't feel anything yeah. about it. Uh, like you probably know that I've made a few films in the past and um, I have always said to people that, you know, the, the worst kind of reaction that I can get from somebody watching my film is the worst one I could ever, ever get is, Oh, that's fine. What I want is for people to have a violent reaction towards it, one way or the other. I don't want, oh, that'll do, or that's fine, or you know, that to me means that I that I may as well am not bothered, you know. Yep. And especially when you're sitting there watching it with somebody, and then they turn to you and say, "What was that about?" I'm like. What, what do you, what, you know, it should have, I may have well have switched, not filmed anything, just spoke to you for an hour, and then that would have been better, right? Yeah, I feel like sometimes people say that because they don't feel confident enough to have an opinion and they're sort of looking for a bit of guidance about what they're, they're meant to think. But I, yeah. yeah, I always want people to just, and yeah, people get nervous talking to me because they're like, oh, but you're a film critic and I'm going to say the wrong thing or I won't have understood it right. And I'm like, but there isn't a right way of understanding something. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I sort of want everyone to just, you know, surely everyone has their own feelings about it. So that's it. I feel like if, even if you don't have an opinion, you might have feelings or an emotional response to something, even if you don't entirely make sense of it. Yeah. And, um... But I want to to move them in some way. If I don't move them at all, or if a film doesn't move me, that's like what what's a well, like what's the point in a three star film? I mean, okay, you've wanted to kill an hour and a half of your life. Then if that if that's what you want, then that's what you got, and that's fine. But that to me is a three star film, right? And yeah. 
but it feels to me like I could have either gone with it or could have not gone with it, you know? It was a toss the coin. It's like, yeah, it's fine, but it doesn't really do anything. It won't. It won't. I, I, I always have these arguments with people. I'm not saying you need to learn a worthy lesson every time, but it needs to move you in some sort of direction. And anyway, is there anything you would like to finally say before we go? No, no, I've, yeah, no, I don't, I think that's, that's been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. And let's hope loads of other people enjoy it. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.